We are just about into week three of a new series that we've started recently in the book of Exodus. Very famous uh, story. And um, yeah, this, this is the third week. And as we've read there from Exodus chapter two, we're thinking today about the birth of Moses. Um, last week, we were in chapter one and we saw something of the brutal slavery that um, a particular king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, inflicted on God's people there. But I'm glad to say, and you'll be glad to know, that the narrative, take, the narrative takes a happier turn this week in chapter two with the birth of a baby. Um, chapter one actually covers 400 years in total. And, um, and it recounts that terrible oppression of Jacob's family who moved there as they grew in number over those 400 years. But chapter two, kind of the pace slows right down and the focus zooms in to one particular family within this growing nation, really, family that's grown into a nation. And you, you may know that it still takes... 80 years for deliverance to arrive for God's people. But the quiet determination of these parents means that their future saviour is born and that freedom is coming. The, the, the compelling irony and beauty, though, of this section is, is incredible, isn't it? Because whereas chapter one had ended with Pharaoh forcing the Hebrews to throw their baby boys into River Nile, this passage ends with one of those Hebrew baby boys growing up in the royal palace. It, it's just a brilliant reversal. It's a brilliant, ironic, delightful story. Imagine that. Their future deliverer, the saviour of their people, is about to grow up in the oppressor's own house. It's interesting that God isn't mentioned anywhere at this point in the story. We'll hear from God when we get to chapter 3. But it is abundantly clear that God is silently and secretly working out salvation for his people right under the noses of his enemies. Only God could do that. If you've got one of our little program um, things, we, you'll see there we've got three headings. And uh, I thought today, as we, as we walk through these 10 verses this afternoon, I just want to highlight three remarkable things for us to see. Three remarkable things for us to see. And the first thing, let, let's think first of all about Moses' parents. We're not given their names here. We, we find out their names later. Uh, Jochebed and Amram. Uh, it's his mother and father's name. Um, they're, they're just referred to here. In, in, in fact, I think that's significant. The only name in this section is the name of Moses, which I think is pointing to his importance. But, we'll, but it, here we are. Let's, let's think, first of all, about the struggle of believing parents. I, I don't think it's hard for us to imagine, for us to imagine, is it, how hard this was for them. 
In normal times, a pregnancy is usually the most exciting of times, isn't it? But think about this. In their case, the cloud of a death sentence hung over all their hopes here. For nine months, this woman is pregnant. And if their child turns out to be a son, I, I wonder, you know, whether perhaps nothing underlines our human vulnerability more than being a parent in a world that is unsafe because of evil. Would you agree with that? I, I, I think there are a few things that underline our human vulnerability than being a parent. The natural love and protective instincts that a parent has sitting alongside their worries about whether they'll be able to keep their little one safe in such a world. That, that idea is on steroids here, isn't it? We've seen the midwives defy Pharaoh's decree in chapter 1. But in this confusing struggle and moment, this family now chooses to resist this evil king too. First of all, we're told that they try to hide the child. Doesn't say how they did that. I don't know whether that was in a cupboard in the kitchen somewhere. They tried to hide their newborn baby boy. And when this child is born, we can sense the natural joy and delight of these proud parents in verse 2, where we're told that they saw that he was a fine child. I mean, every parent thinks that about their child, surely. But we're, we're told in this, their, their joy, their pride. But the following words that say, she hid him for three months, must have covered such a desperate period of anxiety in which their love for their child is mingled with their fear of being caught. We know what it's like when babies make a noise, they cry, but when this baby made a noise and cried, his mother would cradle him and whisper in his ear, shh, child. And for them, that was a matter of life and death. And after three months of frayed nerves, living on the edge, the crisis was still only just beginning because you can't hide a growing baby in a kitchen cupboard for much longer than three months, can you? So they come up with another plan, this time to prolong the hiding by placing the child outside in a basket in the reeds of the nearby River Nile. Imagine the anxious tenderness involved in this. Think of the evenings discussing this in whispered tones. The finding of a suitable papyrus basket 
everything was made of papyrus furniture, <laughs> all sorts of stuff. I, I think wood would be imported more than readily available. They find a suitable basket with a lid, the ceiling of it with black tar. The animated debates between the parents. Is it going to be stable enough to float? Is it going to be waterproof? Give it another coat, love, just to be sure. Think of them lining it with suitable blankets. Maybe a couple of small toys. The wording at the end of verse 3 here, I think really emphasises the tender care They placed the child in the basket. Then they took the basket and placed the basket among the reeds. We're not told what their plan is. What did they think would happen? He can't stay in a basket till he's 15, can he? He can't stay in a basket until he can crawl or fall over. You wonder, you have to read between the lines, you wonder if the authorities are coming round, doing regular checks on these Israelite communities. And somehow they know what this kind of schedule is. And they can pop back in between between the, the police coming round to feed their little baby. Maybe their relatives had a system for raising the alarm. Perhaps they wedged this basket in the reeds so that it wouldn't float away and only they know exactly where the basket was. In verse 4, we're told that his sister, we later find out that her name is Miriam. His sister is assigned the task of watching over a little baby brother from a distance. And I th- think about that. I think... I think you've got to assume that she's not too old for her loitering to provoke suspicion. You know, if she was like 20 and she's hanging around, I, I, I think it's like, what are you doing? What, what, what are you? I, I think she's young enough not to attract suspicion, but she's not so young that she can't look after and keep an eye on her baby brother. What is she, maybe nine or 10? What a task. Imagine they're waiting. Their anguished sense of not being in control of the outcome. Are they hoping that someone will find him and take pity on him? Do do they even have a plan beyond this? I think we can surely sense the the combination of sweet pleasure and deep pain. His tiny fingers, his little smile. What a bundle of hope and aspiration sitting alongside such an aching sense of loss as they leave their baby in the river. 
One writer suggests that when this mother gently laid her baby down, she was tucking her heart inside that basket. It's very poignant, isn't it? You'll notice that in my heading, I describe this as the struggle of believing parents. We, we've tried to enter into a little of their struggle here, but I get the believing part from the passage that we read earlier in Hebrews chapter 11. This chapter from much later in the New Testament describes a long list of past heroes who lived their lives in all kinds of different circumstances by faith in God. And we read in verse 23 of Hebrews 11 that Moses' mom and dad were among them. And this is what we read. By faith, by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months because they saw that he was no ordinary child. And they did not fear the king's edict. I mean, no child is ordinary. But I I think when we read that, I, I don't know if there's a little hint there. It doesn't say. I wonder somehow whether they knew. They knew that Moses was destined for great things. I don't know in that moment whether that was true. But what I do love in this little verse here is the fact that their faith displaced their fear. You get that? What comes across surely here is their bravery. They trusted in God more than they feared the tyrant. And this somehow, somehow enabled them to be tender in the face of great threat. I, we, I mean, we can understand, we could understand it, couldn't we? couldn't we? If this situation gave rise to panic and irritability and bitterness and arguments and worry. I'm sure there was some of that. But somehow their faith in God prompted their creativity and their courage. They did not live in this moment as if they were just merely the victims of random circumstances. They knew that there is a God in heaven. There is not a vacuum in the throne room of the universe. Sorry, my watch is talking to me. It's good that someone's listening, isn't it? <laughs> oh, I don't mean that. I don't mean that. These parents, they, they knew that there was a God in heaven and they refused to be overawed by the terrible horror that was unfolding I'm not sure that it made the situation any less hard I'm not sure if that was able to soothe the whirlwind of emotions that they must have felt but it did seem to give them courage 
they they lived life here on the edge of some kind of mystery, didn't they? Tough, painful, uncertain days. And yet, a consciousness that God is greater than all the things that threaten them. And their trust in God inspired them to be brave and energetic rather than hopeless or naive. These parents knew what fear felt like. They knew that, but they faced it with faith. I I just want to pause here for a moment. We're, We're not all parents. We all have parents. We're not all parents ourselves. I wonder if there is a good word here for those of us who are parents. One writer this week kind of floored me with this comment. Children do not flourish unless they are raised by faith and not by fear. Let me say that again. Children do not flourish unless they are raised by faith and not by fear. There's a lot in that, isn't there? There there is a sense that raising a child, this, this is extreme, but there is a sense that raising a child is always an act of faith, isn't it? Think this mother here, had to literally launch her child out into the world like 20 years too early. (laughs) Literally had to launch Moses out into the world. And for her, this involved total trust in God. She carefully and tenderly did everything she could, but then had the agony of waiting to see how things would turn out. And isn't that, isn't that combination of tenacious love and letting go, isn't that, does it, doesn't that encapsulate the task of every parent? <laughs> to love and ultimately to let go. For them here, that struggle in an extreme circumstance, is is rooted in faith rather than than motivated by fear. But not all of us are parents. There's There's a good word here, I think, for all of us, isn't there? In any situation, in any task, in any difficulty, often the only thing we can do is to do our careful best And then wait and trust God, who is in control even when we're not in control, and in the knowledge that whatever happens, God deeply cares for us. I I, I want to ask you this afternoon, what, what fears are there in your life? that might be threatening to overpower you in this moment. Let me remind you of a wonderful verse from later, again, later in the Bible, where a disciple of Jesus, Peter, encourages struggling believers in the first century. 
In chapter 4 of 1 Peter, verse 7, Peter says this to struggling believers. He tells them to cast all your anxiety on him. That is God. Why? Because he cares for you. struggle then of believing parents let's shift the focus now and to see what God is doing here and let's see a second remarkable thing in this passage and I've described this as the triumph of a caring God and I say triumph because you and told me to <laughs> I have to say that I, I, I was all over the place in my prep this week and I was really struggling with my headings and you and helped me with this the triumph of a caring God um, why do I say triumph why, why did we agree to talk about triumph because in this story throughout this story God's activity is designed to overcome the powers of darkness and evil. We saw last week that Pharaoh here is fighting against God's good intention for his people. He orders their slavery and destroys their children. And God is beginning here to intervene in the very darkest of times when evil is trying to do its worst to destroy the tyranny of evil and so ultimately deliver his people. And every detail in this narrative points to God's loving care in the details in order to overcome and triumph over the evil that's there. You get that? So thank you, Ewan, for, for, for the idea of triumph. Only God could so arrange the details and the circumstances here that Moses is placed into the river that was meant to drown him only to be rescued by the daughter of the tyrant who ordered it. I want to highlight a few ways in which we see the triumph then of a caring God here. First of all, God is at work in the practicalities. I, I just want to draw your attention to that little basket made from papyrus. And I want to remind you of the fact that for a brief moment in human history, God's entire plan for salvation was floating on the River Nile. The entire plan. If this basket sinks, Jesus wouldn't be born one day. That God's whole plan of salvation is in a basket made from papyrus on the River Nile. I, I think it's safe to say that God is at work in the small details. Secondly, I want to suggest that God was work, God, God was at work in the people. We've already seen something of the tenderness and courage of Moses' mother. 
But I want to just consider for a moment with you also Pharaoh's daughter. Isn't it striking that she just happened to bathe in the river at the exact moment? And it just so happens that a basket that probably wasn't visible from the shore just happens to be clearly obvious from her perspective where she is in the water and she sees it. She asks one of her attendants to retrieve it and when she opens it, Moses happens to be crying. That, that's a really interesting detail. It's not unusual for babies to cry. But when we think about it, if God is looking after him, this little baby could not have been in a safer place. And here he is screaming. And from Moses' point of view, this is a moment of real danger, isn't it? And from his family's point of view, what will Pharaoh's daughter's reaction be to finding a Hebrew baby boy? Her dad is the one who's given the order. Look at this six. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is the daughter of a genocidal maniac. I, I think felt sorry for him. I don't know if that's a bit weak. It kind of implies pity. I, I think what she felt was compassion she felt compassion and we all breathe a sigh of relief don't we as her curiosity is turned to compassion Pharaoh's daughter is moved she's not a hard cruel person like her father but a tender young woman with maternal instincts. And the sight of Moses crying in his basket melts her heart. And it's not a vague pity that passes. This is a compassion that moves her to act and to care for this precious little one that she's accidentally found. But in terms of people next, let's see the quick-wittedness too of Moses' older sister, Miriam. We said we don't, we don't really know how old she is, maybe 10 or something. With a lump in her throat, she immediately runs up and very cleverly asks Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and fetch one of the Hebrew women to nurse the child? Imagine her delight, imagine her like hopping and hollering inside when Pharaoh's daughter says, yes, go. I wonder where she's going to go. Imagine the conversation when she gets to her house. Mom, 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 you've got to come. You won't believe this. The shock and the joy of their conversation only grows as Pharaoh's own daughter promises to pay Moses' mom to look after her own baby boy. I, I mean, you, you couldn't write the script, could you? Take this baby and nurse him for me and I'll pay you. Okay. Can we negotiate the hourly rate? Oh, man. How do, I, I want to know how they contained their excitement, stayed cool and kept their business faces on. 
you know, in that moment, you know, play it cool, play it cool, play it cool. <laughs> it's like, how did they stay so cool? And for them to go from your baby being exposed to crocodiles in the reeds of the River Nile to Pharaoh, who actually, in a way, is the angriest crocodile of them all, paying you to look after your own child. The irony. Moses is rescued by the daughter of the man who ordered his death. And remember this, in chapter 1, Pharaoh tried to kill all the sons but spared the daughters. And isn't it just striking that it's the women who undid his wicked schemes? We've touched on this already. The courage of midwives. The tender care of an ordinary mother. The compassion of a tyrant's daughter. The quickness of a big sister. Pharaoh's evil was thwarted by courageous women. Thirdly, here's another P, protection. Uh, one writer humorously helped me to see the, the protection for Moses that this entailed and that no one could ever challenge this. Imagine that we can, we can imagine Moses' mother walking down the street with a pram with baby Moses in the pram and, um, and being met with, you know, neighbour, that's a lovely little girl you've got there, Mrs. Amram. And she's like, no, 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 he's a boy. And they're like, what? <laughs> and they're, they're trying to dart into a shop or something. So you've, got, you've got to hide him. And Moses' mother says, no, 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 no. We, we don't need to hide him. He's the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. They can't touch him. Because of Pharaoh's daughter, Moses has gone from being condemned and hunted to being completely safe under the authority and resources of the whole palace. Protection. God is at work. I want to say, fourthly, that God's care is also seen in the way Moses is named by Pharaoh's daughter. This is, without her realising it, this is prophetic of what Moses will do when he grows up, which is amazing. And I, I can't tell you, many scholars, many academic scholars have debated and spilled ink over the origin of Moses' name here. Is it a Hebrew name or an Egyptian name? I, it seems to me that Pharaoh's daughter tries to give him a Hebrew name, but she gets her translation slightly mixed up. And she ends up saying more than she knew she was saying. She tries to give him a name that sounds something like drawn out in Hebrew. Because she's obviously drawn him out of the water. You get that. But the actual words she does use really describe the, the person who does the drawing out. And I don't think she's meaning to name Moses after herself. I think she's trying to give him a name to signify this moment. But she accidentally names him with a name that was intended to describe the fact that he was drawn out of water, but accidentally points to the fact that he himself will later be the one who will draw God's people out of Egypt and through the waters and out to freedom. Even this little detail 
points to the fact that this birth is indeed all part of God's purpose and plan. God knows the end from the beginning. And the salvation that he is orchestrating here totally belongs to God. From start to finish. And only a God who cares could work things out to the finest of details in order to triumph over evil, to save his people. God saves Moses here so that he will become the great deliverer of his people. But there is more to see here. We, we know that Moses grew up to be a kind of savior, but he's not the ultimate savior. And God's loving care is seen too here in the incredible parallels between this story of the birth of a savior and the later birth over a thousand years later, the story of Jesus himself being born to be a savior in Bethlehem. So think about this. I'll just, I'll just throw out a few things, sprinkle out a few things here. We won't dwell on this, but remember the struggle and faith of another young couple when Jesus was born and their wonder at who this child really was. Hebrews told us that Moses' parents saw that Moses was no ordinary child. We don't really know what they saw in Moses. But we do know that Jesus too was born and he was no ordinary child. This saviour is the son of God taking on human flesh. God himself entering our dark world and becoming one of us. Second, think about this. Jesus too was given a name that describes his destiny and his mission. Moses was born to be the rescuer, the one who would draw God's people out of slavery. But much later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus's earthly dad, Joseph, was told, you are to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because that name, you, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the long-promised greater saviour that God sends into the world to save his people, not from slavery in Egypt, from slavery to self and sin and death. And third, like Moses, isn't it interesting that the baby Jesus also lived through a death sentence on baby boys? You remember King Herod ordered that all the baby boys under a certain age should be killed? And we even might say, fourthly, that it was foreigners actually who took pity on the baby Jesus and saved his life too. Like Pharaoh's daughter defying the, the, her, her dad's order. Remember the wise men defied King Herod's order and so preserved Jesus' life? And then fifthly, I want to say the family credentials of Moses also parallel those of Jesus. Let me take you back to verse 1. We didn't touch on it already. The author simply says that Moses' parents on both sides were from the tribe of Levi. We could easily miss that. 
as an insignificant detail, but the tribe of Levi would later become the tribe of priests who would lead the whole nation to God. That wasn't even known when Moses was born. And so in other words, God had so arranged it that Moses was even pre-qualified for the great priestly role that he would subsequently grow up into. God saw to it that he was even born into the right tribe before anyone even knew what that tribe would later do. And so too with Jesus. The gospel writers are at great pains to give us his genealogy. We read them in Matthew and Luke and we think, why has the Bible got such a boring list of names? All these people begetting other people. And that it all, why, why does the Bible do that? It's showing us that Jesus in his birth was pre-qualified. He descended from the line of Israelite kings and was pre-qualified to grow up and fulfill his mission and take the ultimate throne that is rightfully his. So, we're finding here that not only does God lovingly overrule the specific details of Moses' birth, but he even does that in a way that parallels and points us to the birth of an even greater saviour, the Lord Jesus. Let me show you something from the New Testament. This is a man called Paul writing in the New Testament using Exodus language. And I mean, I wish we could spend more time on this verse, but let me just show you this and read this to you. Paul says this to, to people in the first century. He says this, we were in slavery. That's Exodus language. He doesn't mean in Egypt. We, we were in slavery to ourselves, to sin. And look at what he says. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law to redeem those under law so that we might receive the full rights of sons because you are sons God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts the spirit who cries out Abba father so you are no longer a slave but a son and God has also made you an heir I wish we had longer to look at that verse. But you get, he's, what's he use? Exodus language, isn't it? We were in slavery and God sent his son to redeem us. In the midst of our struggle, God triumphs over the evil that would otherwise dominate us. And his loving care in this chapter, in this story, providing Moses to free the Israelites is a picture of his loving care in providing us with his own beloved son to be our saviour. Jesus is the saviour who was born at just the right time, who lived the perfect life that we haven't, the one who died the death that we deserve and rose again in everlasting power. In him, in Jesus, God has triumphed over evil liberating us from slavery and making us his children. This Exodus birth points us forward to the birth of one greater than Moses. And I think this story of the struggle of these parents 
and the care of God in providing a deliverer. This narrative is inviting us to come with all our fears and all our threats and with all our sins and with all our guilt and to go all in with Jesus in exactly the same way that that mother did who once staked her all on God. Let me very briefly just highlight a third remarkable thing for us to see and then we're done. The last thing here is the tension of a dual identity. One of the beautiful things about this story is that Moses' mum got paid to take him home. I mean, it's just amazing, isn't it? But think about this. What that means is he would sit on her knee. And in those early formative years, he would learn who he was. And I think he would hear something of his parents' God. I I think the teaching of his Hebrew mother will have been crucial in his formation as a person. And those of you who are parents, you, you can think about this. One writer I came across hopefully says this, nothing you do for your children, nothing you give them, is as important as making them aware of God's presence in their lives and their dependence upon God. And get this, this this is an amazing statement. It is not trite or superficial to say that the destinies of nations are fashioned on the laps of mothers and fathers. Can I read that again? Because in this case, it's literally true. It is not trite or superficial to say that the destinies of nations are fashioned on the laps of mothers and fathers. What an important work that is. But imagine the wrench of verse 10. As Moses' mother later then delivers Moses up to be adopted by Pharaoh's daughter and to live in the palace. And I, I do think that Moses was also shaped by his adopted mother. We've seen something of her compassion And we're going to see in the next few weeks that Moses himself grows up with this sense of justice and and care for the vulnerable and a desire to help the weak. Did he get that from his adopted mother? She seems to have had that in the story here. So the climax of this little section here that we've been looking at raises a really important question. Whose son will Moses be? And where did that cry come from? (laughs) Whose son will Moses be? Will he see himself as a Hebrew or as an Egyptian? I think in God's plan and providence, his dual identity is actually the perfect preparation for his later life because he understands the inner workings of Egypt, but he also knows who he really is and the people he belongs to. But here's the point. This is the point. As Moses grows, he has a choice to make, doesn't he? Hebrews 11 sheds light on Moses' decision too. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And he chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace 
for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking forward ahead to his reward. I, I just want to let this land on you and close by highlighting that as Moses grew up, he chose, he chose, he decided to trust and follow God. And the question that Moses' dual identity raises is, whose will you be? To whom will you belong? Who will you decide to follow? We have a lot of inputs, don't we, into our lives. Whose side will you align your life with? This story invites us to trust Moses' God. But it also invites us to be decisive in choosing to follow him. The struggle is real. God's loving care for us in Jesus triumphs over evil. What will you do? Whose will you be? Will you resist him? Or will you, even today, put your hand into his hand and choose to follow him now and forever? Amen.